Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Yeah, hi everybody. This is a Talking Biotech podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we talk about issues in biotechnology or, well, in agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology. Uh, some of the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta and I'm your host this week. And this week we actually do have a little bit of a change. And normally the idea of talking biotech, we discuss ways that biotechnology can typically help speed either genetic improvement of plants, whether that's by transgenic means or maybe by gene editing or maybe even just by enhancing molecular markers that can be used in genetic selections. We also spend some time talking about medicine and other issues where biotechnology can be helpful. Today we're going to talk about something quite different, just because it's a great opportunity to do it. See, I'm in Panama City, Panama, and I'm at a congress called the International Congress on Controlled Environmental Agriculture, ICCEA. And what the idea behind controlled environmental agriculture is, or controlled environment agriculture is, is that when we're talking about genetics and biotechnology, we're talking about ways to control the genetics. This is an opportunity to control the environment by which those genetics are placed. So in other words, when we think of these, um, and y'all can, I just said (laughs) y'all, all of you can imagine, uh, the uh, pink lit greenhouses, the plant factories, these places that you're seeing showing up more and more in the news. This is a good example of controlled environment. It's indoor agriculture maybe vertical farming. You've heard all these different terms, and these are all different extractions, one way or the other, of this idea of controlled environment. You control the environment by where the plant grows. So I'm at ICCEA 2017 here in Panama, and it's been a really great experience, and I've had an opportunity to network with many farmers, uh, experts in robotics and automation, people who are experts in hydroponics. 
But what I wanted to do today for the podcast was do a series of interviews live. Um, well, no, duh. <laughs> you don't, don't interview dead people, I guess. You see, I got a lot to learn in this business. I, I try to be really good and professional. <laughs> and I got the nicest compliment a few weeks ago by by someone who said, I really like your podcast so much. It's, it's um, wonderful, the content you have, and it's not too professional. <laughs> so, all right, good. Noted. And many people will say, why controlled environmental agriculture? What's the point? Why bother? And when you look at it in several ways, there's some good opportunities here. And certainly doesn't replace actual farming in, in, in the major context. What controlled environmental agriculture allows you to do, at least in my vision, is let's talk about just repurposing urban space. If you have an abandoned factory or warehouse, here's some space that can be repurposed to actually producing food near where it will be consumed. Why that's important is because you limit the supply chain, which means a lower carbon footprint, but also means that you're able to deliver food to people in the areas where they're consuming it, which means it's fresher, which means it has a longer shelf life perhaps. The other big issue is that it gives an opportunity to provide skilled jobs inside urban areas and maybe to people who traditionally didn't have those skills but maybe liked working with plants. Uh, they can actually gain those skills necessary to become very adept at working in this area. And the, uh, va- the value of the produce that's produced is usually pretty good, um, high-value produce in city centers. The other big issue is how do we add more flavor, more color, more variety to the palate? The idea of getting people to experience better food, to have more options in terms of uh, what they may experience inside of a salad or from uh, some fresh herbs, being able to increase those sensory experiences may be a good way to get people to be engaging better dietary habits, and that's important too. So controlled environmental agriculture, controlled environment agriculture It ties in very well with the values we frequently talk about when we talk about genetic improvement of plants. It's good for the farmer, good for the environment, good for the consumer. And in many cases in our cities, it can help solve those problems with food deserts and that way help serve the needy. So when we're talking about uh, controlled environmental agriculture, controlled environment agriculture, it really is just another way for us to be able to control how plants output and how plants produce and make better products for people and our planet. And now, on to the interviews. So I'm here with uh, David Preventa. And David, and what is the your official title and capacity here at the conference? I am the president of the uh, Foundation for Controlled Environment Agriculture. Okay, so controlled environment agriculture, a lot of people don't know what this is. Could you give me a, a very simple explanation of what it is and why it's important? Okay, we're uh, traditional farmers, right, over 30 years in the business, and we produce in open field. So there's no control right there. To me, uh, the simplest way to say controlled environment is in the open field, we control nothing. In controlled environment, we can control everything. We control any uh, the temperature, humidity, CO2, nutrient flow. In other words, we have the opportunity using technology to control everything and produce a more healthier crop and be able to, uh, to produce uh, all year long. And, and so you, you started to allude to why it's important, a healthier crop, producing all year round. 
But what are some of the other benefits of this kind of production system? Well, for us as a company, and for many people, uh, we don't have to worry that it, it doesn't matter if it rains outside or if there's even a hurricane. We will be able to control the environment and we can produce 365 days a year. So that, for us as producers and uh, exporters, that, that is a good thing because we don't have to worry about seasonality. There is no season inside a controlled environment, whether it's a greenhouse or a vertical farm. And here we are in Panama. Is there a specific reason that Panama was selected for the meeting? Or uh, perhaps are there opportunities here in controlled environment agriculture? Well, right now the uh, Panamanian government has a big push. They have a lot of incentives uh, to finance and uh, also uh, a lot of grants for farmers to go into controlled environment agriculture. They, uh, we have a lot of climate problems here, just like any other place in the world. So the government understands that in order to help uh, food security for the country, that we need to go ahead and have sustained uh, production. And the only way at this point uh, to be able to do that is by controlled environment agriculture. And, and so uh, I guess when we – I heard today from several different people who were on stage or in different capacities that Panama really doesn't have a, a really solid agricultural base and that there's a lot of problems here. Do you think that something like controlled environments could not only help local people but maybe even have some sort of export market for a place like Panama? Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, in the last uh, seven years, due to climate change – the agricultural industry uh, gave, uh, as far as GDP, was about 14% of the total Panamanian GDP. Today, it's less than 2%. So the agricultural uh, production has actually shrunk over the last seven years. And the only way that uh, the Panamanian government, who is sponsoring the event, uh, sees that the uh, to be able to lift those pro- production numbers up is precisely with controlled environment agriculture. David Provenza, thank you very much for uh, interviewing with me today, and uh, best wishes going forward. Thank you very much, Jerry, and I thank you for coming to Panama and be able to share your knowledge. Thank you. Okay, so now I'm with uh, uh, Chris Higgins from Hort Americas, who is a co-owner of Hort Americas and yep. general manager of Hort Americas. Chris, we're here in Panama at um, ICCEA. Yes. So what does ICCEA mean? So the ICCEA is the International Congress for Controlled Environment Agriculture. And what it it came from is it actually came from the FDCEA, which is the Foundation for the Development of Controlled Environment Agriculture. Uh, This has been a collaboration with the Panamanian government in which the FDCEA represents a nonprofit, which its sole goal, sole purpose, sole mission is to help farmers from around the world gain access to the research, the scientific data that they need to establish innovative farms. Um, And the reason we do it this way is because based on the culture, the geography, the climate, there's so much different things that one needs to know to tackle these projects. We feel the best way to do it is start with the science, use that as building blocks for a foundation, and then build up from there. And we're uh, here in Panama, which is great location for this kind of meeting. Is there any, uh, so you, you kind of alluded to it, but is there any really specific reason why Panama was chosen for this event? Panama chose us. Um, we did not choose Panama. They came to us and asked us if we could help them create this opportunity. And a lot of that credit goes to David Perenza, who's the, the, the director of the foundation and also a vertical farmer in Panama. So David's idea, you know, when David got me involved, 
David was a field farmer of watermelons. And Panama as a country is experiencing a lot of erratic weather patterns due to climate change. So David, as a field farmer, was looking for a way to make his revenue more consistent. Uh, he's explored greenhouses, but as we've learned through this course, uh, through the, this week so far, tropical greenhouses are not the easiest thing to manage. And it's very hot and humid here in Panama. So the next step was, well, let's explore con- completely controlled environment in a warehouse uh, type environment. And then that gained some steam. Uh, Panama, as a smaller country, it's easier to get access to people within the government, easier to get access to ministers of agriculture and politicians. And through building up those relationships, the ICCA was born. And we, we didn't really define what this idea of controlled environment agriculture is. And you kind of alluded to it a little bit. But if you wanted to define this for the average person, what is it? Contro- to me, controlled environment agriculture is best defined by a, a very broad definition of using different technologies, different techniques to manage the climate that you're trying to grow in. And those decisions that you make in managing the climate are often guided by the natural resources that you have to take it that you have to take advantage of or the natural resources that you're guarding against. And so once you know what mother nature once you know the hand that mother nature has dealt you then you can work with the crop and work backwards with the technology to define what controlled environment agriculture means to you, your farm, your crop, and your market. And how long have you been involved in controlled environment agriculture? I started my career in 1996 with ornamental bedding plants, working for a company that took uh, uh, pest management products and took them from large companies, worked them so that smaller farmers would have access to them in a greenhouse. Uh, there's a lot of history with agrochemicals from the late 80s and early 90s that changed the, the way the agrochemical industry worked for niche, specifically niche ornamental crops with high value. From there, I took an opportunity to go work in the Dutch industry, working with uh, high-tech greenhouses. Um, after I had my, my full of the corporate world and traveling from one country to another every other week, uh, I decided to venture out on my own, and that's when Horde Americas was born. I didn't know the whole backstory. I mean, I've known you for a little bit, and we've never really sat down and talked about how it started. Well, now we know. But so what do you think is next for this kind of field? We talked a lot about technology this weekend, and uh, certainly, you know, there's a lot left on the table, I think. And uh, although there's been a lot of headway in the last 10 years, where do you think this is going? And do you think that controlled environment agriculture really stands a realistic shot of becoming a widely adopted technology? Yes, I do. I, I think we have, we've already have proof that controlled environment agriculture is a real industry. You don't have to look any further than countries like the Netherlands, where, where greenhouse vine crops, tomatoes, peppers, and cucumbers, dominate the marketplace. Uh, you don't have to look any further than Spain or Israel to see that controlled environment agriculture dominates the marketplace for fresh produce uh, uh, production. Um, You also can look at controlled environment agriculture as being a part of a greater agricultural process. And I often use the tomato, I'm sorry, the strawberry industry as an example of that. Many of the customers we work with uh, for strawberry production start their plants through micropropagation in a completely controlled environment. They acclimate their strawberry plants in a controlled environment greenhouse setting. They move those plants then into the field. So controlled environment agriculture, from my perspective, 
does not have to be an A to Z uh, uh, process. It can be part of the agricultural process that that attacks uh, problems when the crop is at its highest value, which is often when the crop is immature or at the young plant stages. Yeah, certainly when it's most at risk of pest pathogens and other types of stress. And then the funny part is, is that even when you move them to the field in Spain into plastic culture, that still is a really uh, artificial environment, right? I mean, that's a, that is a novel environment. Yeah, and that's why controlled environmental agriculture has such a broad meaning. And that's why at the conference we use the term CEA or controlled environment agriculture instead of vertical farming or greenhouse production. And the reason is, is that we don't want to limit ourselves to the crop we're talking about. Um, when you talk about greenhouse production, sometimes you there's some uh, some beliefs that that's tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers. When you talk about vertical farming, people think lettuce and culinary herbs. Uh, but that's really not the purpose here. The purpose is to advance technology. And if we are going to tack- tackle some of the more macro problems that, that are very uh, hot topics today, then we have to move past lettuce. We have to move past high-value crops and start to look at things that that, that are more pro- part of the nutritional needs of a basic diet of a wide variety of the population, regardless of income status. No, very good, Chris. I really appreciate your time today. This is a wonderful conference. I really appreciate the invitation. It's been a wonderful eye-opening experience, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Okay. <laughs> So now here we are again in Panama City, Panama, at the ICCEA 2017 conference with Professor Leo Masalas. Leo Masalas. I always say Leo because that's like the English thing, but Leo. And Good. but but uh, you are a uh, professor at Wageningen University yes. in the Netherlands, or which uh, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the coolest name for a country. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, much. I mean, you know, you got Gabon, you know, you know, and then the Netherlands, the Netherlands, yeah, yeah. It's like, like, don't go there unless you're really cool, right? It's cool there, yeah. It's yeah. it's good. Yeah. So, what has really been fun about this conference has been learning a lot about how light conditions can change the way plants grow, and it's a lot about, and, and I and I love what you do because what you're doing is kind of challenging a lot of the traditional ideas that simply turning on this funny pink light is enough to really shape the way a plant behaves and you know you're you're and so what are some of the things that you've learned from let's say tomatoes with the different ways that you can grow them to cause them to have different body shapes different body plants okay yeah we learn a lot i think from the tomatoes and first of all we think that the whole light absorption is still an issue where we can improve the light should be uniformly distributed over all the different leaves and how to create that? Create by where to position the lamps, but also to change the architecture of the plants. You can do that by genetics, or you can do that by using a specific spectrum. And in the end, it should be both tuned towards each other. And we think there's a huge potential to improve the light use efficiency of plants on that aspect. Then if you look at the photosynthesis at the leaf level, well, what spectrum do we need? And then we should not forget, we may look at the chlorophyll, but it's not just about the chlorophyll, it's about the whole leaf, but it's not only the leaf, it's also the whole canopy. Responses might be different. Conclusions about the spectrum might be different, whether you look at chlorophyll or whether you look at the whole canopy. And then, if you have all those assimilates, where are they going? Are they going to the leaves, to the roots, or to the fruits, in the case of tomato? On average, 
tomato plant in a full season, 70% of all the assemblies go to the fruits. But what if we can make that 75% or 76%? 76% would mean 10% yield increase. That's tremendous, and I think we can do that by choosing the right spectrum. And, and basically, to kind of boil that down for the audience that doesn't necessarily do plant biology, this idea of assimilates are when, in the leaves, carbon is fixed in the sugars and moved throughout the plant body and used for either structural or metabolic or sometimes storage, which is what we see in fruits. And so when we talk about higher yields, we're think sometimes thinking about being able to make more fruits with more assimilate stored. And, and so you've seen, and what was nice about your work, so imagine in, uh, so if anyone is listening has ever flown into Schiphol Airport, right, in, in the Amsterdam, you see all these greenhouses that are really, you know, aren't green, they're a funny color of purple. And uh, we're learning about how to deliver light to plants to drive important processes. Now some of your work has tried putting light into the canopy of a plant. So not just shining from the top, but putting pipes within. And so what have we learned from that? Well, what we see now is, because you mentioned the example of what you can see from the plane, well, that's all the light which is reflected by the leaves. So reflected light, it's a loss. So that's the advantage of interlighting in between the canopy that you would not need the losses. But, well, there are no losses to the roof. So they are within the canopy. In effect, the whole vertical distribution of light is better. So there's an improvement, but there is also a but. How is the horizontal distribution? Because that's also important. And there still we need to find a solution to do that in a better way. But also what happens now is that the leaves change their orientation. It's not for all different crops exactly the same. But for instance, with cucumber, we found that all the leaves were hanging downward. That's maybe okay for the interlighting, but now we got less interception of the light which came from the sun. So that's also where we have to take into account. You change something, the plant responds, its physiology, its morphology, and how to deal with that. Yeah, so really what we're talking about is the way in which light models the way a plant behaves. And that's what's really encouraging for me and really intriguing for me is, you know, we, we have this toolbox, which really is different colors of light, to try to unravel the way a plant behaves throughout its development and throughout its different and with different genetics, right? Yeah. And you've been working mostly with tomatoes. And some of the really impressive work that the things that I really enjoyed, that I thought really hit home, was where you were using things like far red light, so light that's invisible to the human eye, yet extremely meaningful to plants. And can you give us a little bit of a recap as to how far red light plays a role in controlling the architecture of the plant? Yeah, well, far red, and in fact, it's already well known, leads, if you have more far red, you get more elongated plants. In young plants, what we see, we get more elongation of the internodes, we get more elongation of the leaves, a little bit more expansion of the leaves. Yeah, and if in that stage, a larger leaf area means more interception of light. More interception of light leads to more photosynthesis and more growth. So that's one important aspect of far red. However, that works very well for tomato, that's not a problem if the crop is very tall. In ornamental plants, you often don't want that because you want to have them compact. Well, then another aspect of the far red, and I think that was not known until recently, but 
what we see is in the tomato that we get relatively more fruits. So with the same amount of total growth of the plant, we get relatively more fruits. That's, I think, a very interesting one. So here's a philosophical question. How do you feel that controlled environment agriculture, all of the funny things we're doing with light, how do you feel this fits into the picture, the big picture of agriculture, and maybe the big picture of how we're going to feed uh, 10 billion people in 2050 and feed, um, like, uh, what is it, like 2015, or no, <laughs> no, more than that. Uh, how are you going to feed 15 billion by 2075? Those are the ones I'm worried about. Wow. Uh, well, I would say, first of all, you see now a lot of innovation coming from this. New developments. We knew already a bit from light, but now we're learning so much more. I think initially what we will see is that we will mainly grow fresh products in indoor farms. We will, and we can grow it anywhere on the world. I'm coming from the Netherlands. Not everybody would agree, but I would say we have a very good climate for growing plants in a greenhouse. Many other places in the world... Winters are much cooler, darker. Their indoor farming, uh, well, it's as good as possible as anywhere else or other places where it's very warm. Then the advantage of indoor farming compared to open field or compared to a greenhouse are tremendous. And then think also of all those urban areas like here in Panama, the big cities, uh, sorry, the big buildings. Well, there's not much area left. So then you can grow in an indoor farm large amounts on a small area. How it will contribute to feeding the whole world, I think mainly the whole knowledge and the fresh products, the more expensive products, which you will not ship for very, for very long distances, I think they will grow indoors. But before we grow the wheat, the corn, well, I, I would say technically yes. I'm not sure if, you will, if it will be economic feasible. I, I don't think so. <laughs> It's too easy to grow wheat and corn in the field, yes. and it's going to be really hard to overcome the breadbaskets of the world. So, yeah. And but I think I think there is definitely a place for us to produce the high nutrient specialty crops, and to be able to make carrots and tomatoes and and lettuces and leaf leafy vegetables, which produce many of the the key vitamins that people lack and many of the deficiencies. And so I'm I'm, a, I'm never I'm never a fan of feed the world. I don't. No. I mean I I would I shouldn't say that that way. I love the idea of feeding the world, but I don't think there's one technology that will ever do it. But I do feel that this has a really specific niche. And it's very exciting to be sitting here in Panama with someone like you sharing the ideas that you shared. So thank you very much for coming here. Okay, thank you. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> so now I'm with Dr. Cherry Kubota, and she's at University of Arizona in the Controlled Environment Program, which really is one of the probably one of the best controlled environment programs, which means they study how to grow crops inside a box, basically, in an environment where you can uh, control temperature, humidity, all the other accessories. So I would have to ask you, uh, we're here at ICCEA, and what are some of the, um, uh, what are some of the most important parts of controlled environment agriculture that you study? So, um, the most important things in controlled environment agriculture is the interdisciplinary part. Um, that means you, you need to understand not just horticulture or plant science aspect, 
but also horticultural engineering aspect, which means design of the structure, how structure affects the crop growth, and then also how you can modify the environment, lighting and temperature and humidity and CO2. So you really need to understand the both um, aspects. And then um, I, I believe University of Arizona offers that kind of educational opportunity for students, and then not only students but professionals. Yeah, I, I actually I've been there, and you invited me out one time. You go to the university, which is downtown in Tucson, and then you go up the road north, and you go out to the controlled environment facility. It's a beautiful facility. Right. And uh, so some of the things that uh, you have studied, what are some of your major areas of, of focus? And um, what are some of the ways that maybe your research has translated to some sort of tangible, realistic gain for a grower? Yeah, so, excuse me. um, So I work on technology development, science-based technology development, and I don't do um, discovery work. Discovery work is um, the the responsibility of other basic scientists. but I use that discovery to make the um, variable applications out of it. So um, I, my technology is science-based, lighting, you know, uh, based on the understanding of uh, photobiology, for example. Um, so something like that is, a, is, is what I do. And then also um, the Controlled Environment Agriculture Program has engineering faculty who design system, who um, uh, uh, develop a, a different strategy to control the environment to make the productivity of crop based on the understanding of plant physiology. So we work together you know, between um, plant science and uh, um, agriculture engineering to make this whole system work. Your background is mostly in plant physiology, and and, and you've worked. You're at Chiba University, right, right. and in, uh, and so when you uh, think about your training and the things you've learned, how would you really guide somebody who is interested in this area? Uh, maybe a student who's interested in in having an urban farm or developing, uh, you know, or I should say, urban agriculture, indoor agriculture. What should they study? Yeah. So. <clears throat> Chiba University has a unique program in which I had, um, you know, very good advantage of that uh, because they educate horticulture students um, so that they can gain understanding of engineering also. So it's very interdisciplinary. It's a very nice vision somebody, you know, developed many years ago. Um, so I got to learn engineering concept in addition to horticulture, plant science, and biology, and you know all that agronomy. Um, we in U.S. really need to integrate horticulture program and uh, engineering program at a certain extent, um, not dividing completely into uh, two different uh, disciplines. But it's really students need to learn both arenas or both areas of study so that they can exercise their understanding in the actual application. So I'm, what I'm hope to do is more um, well, developing more programs um, in which students have opportunity to learn both 
And, and, and but now, if you have this education and this training, and maybe good training in the engineering side, maybe in physiology, maybe even genetics. Right. Do you imagine that there's going to be a significant future in this area? And, and, and where do you think it's going to be most important in terms of helping people? Yeah, so, um, well, so uh, in a disciplinary meaning, you understand the language and then you understand the concept. And uh, um, yeah, so not just um, college education, but we need to educate professional so that those who didn't have opportunity to learn the other area. So for example, they, they learn horticulture stuff, but they never learn uh, instrumentation, sensor, and control. Um, I hope we can provide more opportunities for professionals to sort of um, supplement the understanding. And then that is very necessary because agriculture is so complex. You know, in terms of systems, and then you can't just solve the issues with just one side of you know understanding. You need to understand not just horticulture, um, but also engineering, and then um, economy, and then everything, plant pathology, and genetics, and everything. So you know, we really need to work together as a team. But understanding the language and basic concept of individual disciplines is really um, helpful to create a very um, effective team to make things happen and to make the change happen. So that's very important for the future food production in the U.S., not only U.S., but the world. Well, Dr. Cherry Kubota, very nice to see you again, and best wishes in the future. Thank you so much, Kevin. Okay, so we're here in Panama still. Yes, <laughs> and I know. Panama at night, yes. Yeah, uh, at, at ICCA 2017. Uh, here with Ricardo Hernandez, and, uh, from, uh, assistant professor at North Carolina State University, and a guy I've known for a long time. Even though you're a young guy, I've known you since you were... Uh, like 18 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Always looking up to you, Kevin. And uh, <laughs> so, no, I'm just, I'm just glad that we get to meet each other at different conferences now. So I know it's fun, yeah, isn't yeah. it? It's well, a privilege. Yeah. Well, well, well let, let. So let's talk about a couple of things. When we talk about controlled environment agriculture, what should the listener to this podcast understand about why we do it and why we think about it? Why is it an important thing for us to consider? Yes, yeah, so it's, it is important for several things, right? We know all the all the uh, uh, common knowledge where you know local food production, uh, try to reduce food deserts, and then uh, reduce the number of uh, the amount of pesticide use. But the way I look at it, I think is the new science where we can actually hit the new generation of students. You know, more common is when uh, more and more people are moving away from farming, right? And this is true on traditional farming. So I think this new generation of farming, which is high technology, high knowledge, and uh, a high understanding of plant sciences, is actually going to attract the, the new generation of farmers, right? Typically, a farmer is born into farming, right? You have large acreage. I think this control environment agriculture is the opportunity to have new and beginning farmers to come around. No, it's a really good point. It's almost like uh, it's a different idea. Like before it was, you know, the inheriting the family farm, uh, maybe learning the, learning it from your family, handed down from generation to generation. And maybe this new model is 
getting to ground zero where the people are who are looking for food for specialty crops, or as you say, food deserts. Or, um, and maybe this is an opportunity for people who just want to try to change the food system to be able to contribute in a different way. And, and how do you feel that this kind of uh, this kind of precision agriculture can do that? Yeah, so it's 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 uh, just think, let me give you an analogy, Kevin. You know, in the past we all wanted to drink the basic light beer, right? Well, and that, that wasn't enough for us, right? <laughs> but now we all want the specialty beer, right? We all want the home, the the craft, the new flavors, the infusion of flowers and fruits. We want that new uh, 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 generation of beer. I think it's the same with food. You know, we're used to eating the common common food, common lettuce, but now we want the new food, the more nutritious, the better flavor, the better consistency. So I think the only way to achieve that, the specialty food, is through a, to a specialty environment and genetics. And, and I agree with you. I think there's a high-end market that really is seeking that kind of uh, new nuance and change and differences in their diet. But are there opportunities for us, because of the fact that this is urban-centered, to maybe be able to serve a clientele that previously has not had the opportunity to access those kinds of products. It's not going to be Whole Foods anymore. It might be the corner grocery store. And, and does this kind of technology really lend itself to help rectifying the problems of food deserts? Yeah, so currently it's a stretch, right? Because we're using new technology and in order to, to be able to, to, to afford this technology, we have to sell to the end class of, of food, food consumption. However, there is an opportunity here. Right. The opportunity is if we, are, if we use the technology together with the biology, we can probably create a new way of farming that later we create greater efficiencies and bring food closer to all of us that cannot afford the, the, the high-end stuff, right? So uh, bringing the biology, the, the genetics, and the technology, you know, down to an understanding where we can all use it and produce food, then we'll be able to grasp it. Let me give you another analogy. So currently, just think about a computer. A computer is a very uh, high-tech, very complex uh, 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 tool, right? But we can all use it, right? So I think this is where the technology is going to advance, where right now it's a very complex science, but we're going to get to a point with the use of biology, technology, genetics, and environmental physiology. We're going to get to a point that we can just need to press a couple of buttons to make it happen. And at that point, we will all benefit from it. Now, I look at your work and the things that you've done, and you've done a tremendous amount of work inside greenhouses where you're supplementing the natural light with either additional LED light or day-length extensions or other types of technologies. And is this idea that, uh, you know, the sun is free, right? So the sun is, is automatically there for farmers in a greenhouse or field setting. What gains can be made by using artificial, envi artificial lighting environments? So like you say, the sun is free. And I think, you know, uh, the sun will still be used for conventional farming where we need to meet the minimum calorie intake for those staple food. I think there is no reason why we, can bring, we need to bring those food into a specialty production. However, if we can give the plant what the plant needs and if we can breed specialty cultivars just for indoor environment, then we can create a unique generation of products, right? We'll still meet our caloric intake from conventional farming, but now we can meet the nutritional intake with specialty farming, finding those cultivars that can adapt to that new technology. So it is a combination, right? Um, no tool will solve the issue, right? We, have, we need a combination of, of different tools to be able to move forward. And so if we look at um, what does the urban farm of the future look like? If you were to get out your crystal ball 
and make a prediction about where we would be in maybe 10 years, I think, maybe, I think five years, is it realistic that a farm inside a city center could be providing high-value um, high foods for farmers but also be feeding more people who typically couldn't afford a, uh, a $6 head of lettuce at Whole Foods? Is this something that we can see? I think I think we can, Kevin, and it requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of work uh, from people like you that understands not only the technology and the environment but the genetics. I think we require a lot of work. But yes, I think it is now. The potential is there. The knowledge is there. We just have to stay in the in, in the right path. But it's a straight line. It's a straight line to accomplish this, right? It's a straight line to make this complex system into a simple system that we can all manage. And I'm with you. You know, and that's what's so much fun about this kind of a <laughs> this kind of a conference is that here you're taking all these people who have very different. Uh, and we're laughing because Cherry came dancing by. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but and Cherry was your advisor. Yes, yes. So, and still my advisor, well, still my mentor. No, yeah. no, you, you never get rid of them. Do yeah, you? yeah, no. yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but but this is the beauty of this kind of a conference is you see generations of scientists who uh, have all had a common mission and centered around this idea of using technology to make better profitable um, opportunities for farmers, uh, maybe better food for people, and maybe even have some decrease in environmental impacts of farming. And those are the things that get me super excited. But what about an application in a place like Panama or other types of cities around the world in areas where food is extremely scarce or extremely, let's say, high caloric density, or I shouldn't say high caloric density, high nutrient density is extremely scarce? How can this technology realistically be deployed, and do you think that's realistic? Yeah, so you can see now in the in this new break, new world, we can see globalization takes over uh, most of our, our production systems. Globalization has a point, and it is it is a good uh, 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 overall. It's a good uh, uh, standard for living. However, countries more vulnerable to globalization are those that are less food secure. We don't have that issue in the U.S., right? We're very, in terms of caloric intake, we're very food secure. We're still a little bit lacking behind nutritional security. However, countries like Panama or countries like uh, actually import most of their food, I think this is a unique opportunity. Now you have the opportunity to be closer to food security, right? To be closer, uh, to keep your people uh, uh, on a right level of nutrition without depending on the uh, world's geopolitical environment. Yeah. So I think it's key technology for food security. I agree. You know, and Dr. Borlaug said it best, you know, that, that you, can't, you can't have world peace on an empty stomach. And I think there's that the idea that if you can begin to provide the very basic essentials for people with food and education and health care, that then you see other great changes take place. And uh, this is such an important part of food security. Sitting in a room like this today is humbling because it's not just with experts who know how to uh, deal with the science, but we're sitting here with local farmers and we're sitting here with people who are curious about how they can use this technology. And, um, you know, to me, this is a... this is where science kind of gets fun, isn't it? I mean, so so you're pretty early in your career. And uh, do do you think that this is uh, something in your lifetime that you might see a few big transformative breaks that really change the way in which we uh, farm through uh, urban agriculture. Absolutely, Kevin. I'm just, I'm just glad to be part of the mix, you know. And, uh, and you're right. You know, sometimes we take what we know by, and our opportunities for granted. And sometimes you see that small changes and small information can, can 
that it may seem trivial to us, to the to the other countries or to the other people that are trying to learn this technology, is a big, you know, uh, uh, life-changing experience. So the more we can share, the more we can uh, uh, invite other people into the mix, uh, the, the sooner we're going to get to our goal. Well, very cool. Ricardo yeah. Hernandez, thank yeah. you very much thank for you, joining Kevin. me. Thank it you very much for the, for the space. Yeah, thank I can't wait to yeah. see you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. So there you have it, um, interviews with some of the leaders and some of the speakers here at ICCEA 2017. It was an outstanding Congress. Uh, It's really kind of funny that most people don't realize that a significant portion of what I do in research is in this controlled environment agriculture space. This is uh, something I've studied for 30 years, that we've worked hard to understand the way that light interacts with plants and controls the way they grow and develop. And now we're able to apply the principles we've learned to these areas of increasing nutrient density, uh, being able to grow plants in urban centers. This is really a fun edge of what I've been studying for a long time. And so the ICCEA conference was an outstanding opportunity to really match um, what we know about light with the genetics of plants, with automation, with robotics. So many interesting things happening here today. So that's it from the ICCEA conference. Thank you very much for listening to Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you um, for supporting us on iTunes and for leaving favorable reviews. It's wonderful. I think we got almost all five stars except for maybe one dork. Um, But thank you very much for uh, your comments there. It really does help us become a more highly placed podcast in the hierarchy of podcasts. And uh, more people find us. So thank you very much again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.